as I read for you today's passage, Acts 7, verses 1 through 16. We'll do just the first portion of Stephen's sermon today um, and take it in increments. Hear now the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he had lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go to the, into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they have after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor. In Shechem. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this redemptive historical lesson of what you have done. Father, in the context of this passage, the hearers of this sermon did not respond well, did not respond with ears to hear and eyes to see, and did not respond with cut hearts. Father, may it be that as we observe this narrative and hear these words, that you would cut our hearts, that we would hear the proclamations of your promises, and hear and see Jesus Christ in this sermon that Stephen preached 2,000 years ago. May we not only see Jesus, may Jesus take us over, and may we submit with gladness 
to his kingship and his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we go into this particular passage today, and it was when I looked at the next chapter after finishing up chapter 6, I was like, oh, this is a daunting passage um, to preach. And I would have to say that from most commentators that I've read or most sermons that I've heard, and I listened, I got a chance to listen to a, a lot of sermons on this passage, a lot of people, and these are guys who are much more faithful and knowledgeable than me, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time in this chapter. For such a long chapter with so much information, they go to the end of the chapter very quickly. And um, I was tempted to do the same, felt like I was in good company. Um, But we are going to dig into this. And (laughs) just to let you know that it's not um, unnatural, I think, for us to look at this sermon that Stephen preaches and think, oh my goodness, that's a lot of stuff and, and seemingly somewhat dry. Even John Calvin himself said that this sermon may seem at first blush, absurd, and foolish. Because, <laughs> can you have the audacity to actually say that about God's word? But he said it's not. <laughs> he quickly uh, turns it around and says there's nothing in this particular passage that is unnecessary, that everything in his sermon should be savored and chewed upon. And so we're going to take it in increments, but before we go into this sermon, I wanted to kind of prep you a little bit. I want you in a very short period of time, and I'm not going to give you just a few seconds, I want you to imagine, create in your mind a story, just to make it, make it simple, don't get too elaborate here, where there is a protagonist, If you know what the protagonist is, he's the main person of the story that you're following. And then there's an antagonist, which is usually someone who is the adversary of the protagonist. And make a hero. The hero could be the protagonist. The hero may be somebody else. But imagine a story with you in it, really quickly, where there's a protagonist, an antagonist, and a hero. Just for a few seconds. Some of you may be more creative than others. Some of you may imagine this kind of thing all the time. When I was a kid, I used to assume, based upon my strange transition of two families, that I thought I was a scientific experiment for a while, that they were trying to see what was going on. I watched way too much television. So I imagine all these particular scenarios where I was being watched and they were studying me. I think it was just boredom, but I used to put myself in a story where I was always the protagonist and they were doing something very strange to me. But imagine a story where you're in it, there's a protagonist, an antagonist, and a hero. Are you imagining a story, William, where there's a hero in it? Okay. Now, I don't want you to tell me, you don't have to raise your hand or say out loud, but ask yourself, were you the hero in the story? Or were you the rescuee in the story? I am going to ask you, were any of you in your own story, and looking at a few of you, some of you may say yes, where you were the antagonist in the story? Ah. (laughs) I know that there's some people who would put themselves in that place. I don't know what that exactly means. We're not going to go too deep into that. But this particular sermon is playing off of the fact 
I believe that Stephen, in his particular audience, is postured toward his audience in thinking that they are wrongly putting in the story of God's redemptive history, putting the wrong people in the wrong places of whether they're the antagonist, protagonist, the hero, or the rescuee. And his purpose in this sermon is to give them a rightful account of what God has done and where he really comes in in his finale is that he actually puts them in their place of where they're at in the story. And it's a painful thing for them to hear. Before he goes into this sermon, if you want to rewind just a little bit, there in chapter 6, it says that the, the Pharisees, the teachers, the, the rulers of the faith that were there, they were accusing Stephen. Like I mentioned in the last sermon, they were accusing him of the same things that they accused Jesus. They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as they present these charges to him, they were saying that he was speaking against the place, the temple, the land, and he was speaking against the laws, the customs of Moses. That these are two cherished things that Stephen was speaking against and Jesus was speaking against and that their purposes were to defame them and to destroy them. Those were the accusations put before Stephen. So Stephen is responding to the accusation, but he's, a, he's responding in a very interesting way. He's responding with a history lesson. He is responding by a story. He is in defense of himself, but he's not defending just his purposes or his motives, he is going to give them a history lesson and give them a correct understanding of not only history, but a correct understanding of the theology of God. And then he's going to let them know where they're at in the story. And by doing so, he is going to present to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is going to actually love them by calling them to repentance and faith. Fast forwarding, and we'll deal with this more in the next sermon and maybe even the third sermon on this particular passage. But he responds to them after he gives them this history lesson. He stops by doing his altar call with them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did you, your fathers, not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the, king, of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It's a very you know, warm and fuzzy altar call to the hearers of that particular sermon. It's important that we hear that, and that echoes in our mind, because everything he is saying in this story, history, theology lesson, is making that ultimate accusation toward them. 
But there's grace in that. It doesn't sound like very graceful words. I often think that if I was constantly speaking to people like that and say, oh, I love people. I want them to hear this. This is the gospel that people would not think that I was very loving. And, but I think you need to be very assured. And you can see in the following paragraph that he did have a love for them and that these were the exact words that they needed to hear. They needed to know where their place was in the story. They needed to know that their understanding of their place in the story was wrong. And if they don't have that understanding, they will actually lose out on the riches of the story. So let those things echo. You stiff-necked people. He wasn't just being harsh and mean. That's, he was very precise and even surgical in calling them that. In fact, it's the only time in the New Testament that that terminology is used. It's not the only time in the Old Testament that it's used. It's the only time in the New Testament that people are being accused of being stiff-necked. You would probably think that others may have said that, but I couldn't find that. That particular Greek term was not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And uncircumcised in heart and ears, very purposeful. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Those are the three things that he accused them and ultimately accusing them of murder and disobedience to God's law. So keeping that in mind, knowing what the accusations are, knowing how the accusations were turned back over, but then in the middle of this is this very long history lesson. Very long history lesson that has Abraham and Joseph and a lot of Moses, a little bit of David and a little bit of the king... Solomon, but ultimately, all in this is Jesus Christ. And every bit of this is pushing and pointing them toward Jesus Christ. And so by doing so, he is presenting the gospel. So let's go back. So typically, most people, with a few exceptions, most of us, we tend to put ourselves in the protagonist role of a story that we would correct. Not everybody. I knew that some of you were different. I'm not going to call you odd, just different. A lot of us like to put ourselves in the hero. Some of us would may even go as far to put ourselves in the damsel in distress, the rescuee, the person that needs the hero. But very few of us put ourselves into a story or like to think of ourselves as the antagonist or the enemy or the adversary of a story. One of the interesting things is that it's not unusual for people to write stories that might have someone who you think is a friend who turns out to be the adversary. That's a very common kind of story. We very rarely see the opposite where the enemy actually becomes the hero. And where you, if you're in the story, become the bad guy. But that's the presentation that's being given in this particular story. So we have to, to look at it, that, that how Stephen is proclaiming this story or laying out this story. He's wanting them to understand that those who are perceiving to be, what, that who they are perceiving to be the enemy is actually the hero. And that the persons who they think they are in the story, they are actually the enemy. I was trying to think if there's any famous story. Maybe you all can think of some and you can tell me after worship. I couldn't think of a lot of stories. I, I did think of Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor tends to write in that style. If you're familiar with Flannery O'Connor, she's really good at 
creating a lot of bad guys, very violent bad guys, misfits, and people who are typically in the category of being bad or weird or odd. And she often likes to play around with that and make some kind of characteristic highlight about them that's actually good and noble. And then often there is a protagonist, a positive person that you could associate with. And by the time she gets you wrapped up where you're associating with the good person, it's too late. She's trapped you because that's actually the bad person. And therefore what she does is she points the finger at you and that you're the bad person. And that those who are weak are actually the hero God likes that story. That's why Flannery O'Connor writes in that kind of style. A lot more graphic in some respects, but she does like that style, I think, because she sees that in the scriptures. And what you have here is Stephen looking at that for them, trying to present it to them in that kind of way, because if they could put that kind of template on the understanding of this proclamation of history, they have salvation as the reward if they could see themselves, because that's the whole hope that Flannery O'Connor has in twisting those kind of tables. It's not natural for us to want to put ourselves in the position of being the antagonist. It's not natural for us, for some of us, to want to be the enemy. And in this particular portrayal, it's interesting, but it's not only that they're the enemy, but they are truly the damsel in distress that needs a hero, that needs a savior. It's a very interesting way of understanding story. Unfortunately, at least in the response of this particular chapter, it does not seem like they responded with getting that point. And so I warn you and I encourage you that as you read this story, as you hear this sermon that Stephen is writing, that you be cautious of that that you not leave yourself in the position as those who are hearing this sermon in this story did, where they become angered by being put in the right place. Stephen's sermon is very long compared to other sermons in the New Testament. It's the second longest sermon. The first longest sermon is the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, which is not a very long sermon compared to maybe my sermons. But the Stephen's sermon here is the second longest, and it probably seems a little bit longer because it's a history sermon, and it's got a lot of stuff in it. It's overlapping a lot of information. But the very first thing is very important for us to hear, just as it was important for them to hear. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Hear me in this. And so it's so important for us to hear Stephen preach this sermon, to slow down and go through it, and to, to even break it apart because the audience here in this particular room is not the audience there. The audience there, these Pharisees, these brothers and fathers, are actually a lot more prepped for the sermon in some respects than you guys are, I believe as a whole, as I am as a whole, because they hold tightly to where his proof text passages are coming from. They've read these passages. They know this story well, and they know the Old Testament well. 
It's not a matter of their knowledge of the story or their knowledge of the passages. It's their application of it that is at fault here. But for us, we are weak. We don't even have a really firm grasp of the passages that Stephen is pulling from in this particular way. Now, some of you have probably a greater level of knowledge and understanding of these particular stories. But I would grant you that it's likely that you don't have as strong of a hold as they had. But Jesus said to them that unless your faith is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no hope for us. So it's important for us particularly to do the hard work of going through this and looking at this. And yes, even Calvin is here to pat us on the back and and say, yeah, it may seem at first an embarrassing, absurd, and foolish way to respond to the accusations. But hear him. Hear him out. A lot of the ways that Stephen has postured himself in this sermon is kind of a combination of how Peter does things and how Jesus did things. And a lot of this particular narrative in of itself is a replication of basically what happened to Jesus. And Stephen's trying to be that way, I think. Stephen's hoping to be like his Savior. And he has been listening to Peter, and he's using a very similar posture. You'll see in Acts 2, Peter saying, Brothers, hear me. He tries to get their attention, and then he goes back to the promises of the Old Covenant. And he walks them through that and had highlights for them how Jesus is the center of all the covenant promises. Stephen is doing the same thing here, but with two very different results. In Acts 2... It says that they respond with being cut to the heart. But in here, it says that they responded with gnashing their teeth and ultimately doing unto Stephen what they did to Jesus. As he accuses them of murder, their very next step is murder. But we know in this particular story and in the very next chapter, there's at least one that is listening and hearing. And it may have not have cut him to the quick at that time. We don't know for sure. We know that Saul is listening to this sermon. And we know that Saul will continue on in this particular book. And he will continue on with proclaiming the gospel. It's important to look at the distinctions of sermons as we look at this particular sermon. He is using a lot of Old Testament. And you'll see as we talk about Paul, Paul does not use a lot of going back. He doesn't go as in-depth as Peter and as Stephen did because he has a different audience. He has the Gentiles. And so some people may say, well, this is not as important for us because we're not Jews. Well, I think it's even more important for us today to really see ourselves as kind of a hybridization of both. Yes, we are the Gentiles. We are not the Jews. We did not grow up with that. But we are in an age today where it is very crucial for us to look at the whole of Scripture and to go back into the old Scriptures to see where Jesus is being highlighted and see who Jesus really is by the definition of how the Old Testament describes it. And it's crucial for us evangelically For us to have a grasp of what Stephen is preaching about, not because we're going out and we're preaching to primarily Jews, but in this day, of this post-Christian day of what a lot of people call it, people actually go back into the Old Testament. And in many cases, pagans of this age, the lost of this age, may actually know their Old Testament better than a lot of modern day Christians. They go back and they're looking for things in the Old Testament 
that do not fit the religion of the day, that don't look fair, that don't look just, that don't look equitable, that look like it's oppressive toward women, oppressive to different races. And so they go through, and with their perspective of the history of God and his people, they've created a narrative of their own. And so often... What happens in the day-to-day with the modern evangelical church is that as they are thinking about going out and maybe being evangelistic to people, they are being opposed because of what is in the Old Testament. So it's crucial for you and me to take time and to hear Stephen out, to hear Peter out, not just for our own understanding of who Jesus is, but for the gospel's sake today and the proclamation of the gospel's sake today, we must know these stories. We must put ourselves in this particular context and ask the Lord, Lord, help us to hear, help us to see, help us not to be stiff-necked, help us not to be uncircumcised of heart, and help us to not reject the Holy Spirit, but to be grateful for the cutting of the heart the piercing of the soul, for our salvation and for the proclamation of his truth. Stephen focuses in his response to the accusation on precisely the things that he's being accused of. They're accusing him of speaking against the place, the temple, the land, the thing that they cherish. They've already heard Jesus say that destroy this temple, and he was talking of himself, but he was still prophesying of ultimately the destruction of the temple. And they know that there is something about this new understanding of the scriptures, a new understanding of God that goes against holding on too tightly to the place. And so Stephen goes back and he highlights the purpose of the place. He goes back to the customs, to the law of Moses, and he highlights the purpose of the law and of the customs that they say that they were holding so tightly to. He's being very precisely responsive to what they are accusing him of by going back, first of all, to Abraham. And in this particular story of Abraham, we see Something that's a little bit unique and that you don't see in the Old Testament portrayal, it's a little bit confusing because he is saying that God went to Abraham even before he went to Haran. When we go into Genesis 15, in 12 and 15, and 12, 13, 14, and 15, we, we, it looks like that he's already in Haran when God starts to interact with him. But in this particular passage, it's saying that he was already presenting his glory before Abraham in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And so Abraham was called, we see, by God to start moving toward the promised land. And Abraham is kind of slow. He's not moving very quickly in that. And he didn't just get up and leave. He actually moves to Haran with his father, and he stays there until his father dies. And how Stephen portrays it, it says, and after that, God removed him. There's theology being taught here that even the one that they cherish as being the father of their faith was a little slow with that faith. That God is the one, one who has called him, 
who has called together his own people, but he's also the one empowering and moving his people alone. Along. Even in their slowness and in their disobedience, God is the one who is creating his people. God is the one who is creating the narrative. Why is Stephen telling them this? Because in their mind, they're the ones who are empowered in the narrative. And he is slowly teaching them, reminding them that God is sovereign over the faith that they say that they hold. Then Abraham does move further along. And as you know the story of Abraham, he is... He has some faith, but it's, it's taking some time for it to mature and to develop. He's confused about where the promises are going to go. Any of us would have been like Abraham in that situation when you're that old and being told that you're going to have a child and that God is going to bless your offspring and that he's going to build a kingdom from that. And you're already advanced in years and you're not anticipating that you're going to have a child yourself. So Abraham was believing God to a degree, but kept thinking that he had the idea of how that promise was going to be fulfilled. And what we see here and being reminded of as we look at Abraham is that Abraham was confused about the promise, trying to grasp on and slowly grasping on and in time grasping on more fully. And he is, Stephen is reminding those who are hearing that we are slow to grasp on to the promise. Because as they're thinking about the land that they're saying Stephen is speaking against, they're forgetting that it's the promised land. They're focused more on the land and the promise in what Stephen is wanting them to remember that the purpose is the promise, even more than the land. And that's where they are mistaken, is that they're focused more on the land than on the actual promise That was what Abraham's fault was. He was focused too much on the physical and not understanding the fullness of the promise and therefore doubting the promise to some degree. But God sustained him and carried him on and pushed him further along. And then we see this is where the circumcision call came to be. It may seem like an insignificant, just kind of a point of reference, but this is showing that Abraham was given this act, this command, to hold on to the promise. To hold on by doing circumcision, you are holding on to a declaration of promise by God. And it says he did. He did circumcise and moved on. Circumcised Isaac and then held on to the promise. And so it's an encouragement to the hearer's to hold on to the promise, to be thinking more about the promise instead of the land. And then we have the story of Joseph. And this is where he starts getting a little bit closer to home to them by saying, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. He takes a moment to highlight the story of Joseph because by highlighting the story of Joseph, He is going to highlight before them Jesus. That Joseph was given to us not only as a fulfillment of the promise and pushing along the promise, but as a shadow and an indicator of Jesus Christ. 
And he is putting before them a correction of their understanding of the narrative by reminding these fathers that the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. This is where he begins to accuse them of their own jealousy. That they're in the narrative here too. That their way of thinking is in the narrative here too. That just as the brothers, the fathers and the brothers of the faith, were jealous of Joseph, they're jealous of the one who will be their savior. But the one that they consider to be the enemy, here the patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph, they saw Joseph as an irritant as he comes back with this dream and he shows them and tells them in the dream that they are going to be the ones who will bow down to him. The audacity for this little brother to tell them that he is going to be the one to do this. The weaker being the one who's the king who will be the savior for them. And so therefore they conspired to harm and murder him. And he is, that's what Stephen is doing. He's saying, you are just like them. You're missing that the one that you see to be the enemy is the one who is your savior. They know the story of Joseph. They know the story of how Joseph ends up being the one who saves them from the famine who becomes the greater one, and that they have to come to him and be recognized by him and to receive their salvation from him. He's accusing them of their jealousy and their sin, but in that, do you see that inside of that, he is also giving them the proclamation of grace? That yes, you are jealous, You're just like them. You're caught up in yourself. But they were saved. They were saved by Joseph, the one that they sought to murder. You too, the one that did murder Jesus, can be saved by the one that you hated, by the enemy. And he's pointing out to them, you're you're the antagonist of the story, but you are also the one who is in need of rescue. You must first become the one who is the antagonist so that you would be postured to be able to be the one who is in need of rescue. I told you about maybe the story one time where I was talking to a Muslim and he was reading the Quran and I said, what's your favorite story in the Quran? And he mentioned the story of Joseph. He said, that's my favorite story. And I said, really? And I said, I think that's one of my favorite stories too. I said, why do you like the story of Joseph? And he said, because I feel like he's like me. I am just pushed down and I am despised. But one day I'm going to be the hero. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) I said, I think I take a different perspective of that story. I said, I think I am one of the brothers. I am one of the brothers who is jealous. I am one of the brothers who wants something that doesn't belong to me. And I am the one who's going to need a savior. And that savior, I said, I think that's one of the best stories 
in your Quran and in my scriptures because it points ultimately to Jesus Christ and our need that the one who is like me, the jealous one, is also the one in need of a savior. I don't know if he got any of it or that or not. He just kind of looked at me with glassy eyes. Um, who knows whether he'll be like Paul one day and remember that right understanding of that particular passage. This is a story that is not what we like to hear. We don't like to consider ourselves of being the antagonist. We don't like to consider of ourselves really ever being the bad guy. But we have to be actually like the brothers and fathers here as we hear this. We need to put ourselves in that position because we can't get to this last verse in 16 that I read today. It said that, and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died and he and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Seems like technicality, right? Well, it's not a technicality. Because as we went further along in Abraham's story, we see that by the time we get to the end, by the time that Sarah dies, he buys a piece of property. Now, they were going to give him that property, but that property was rooting their bodies, their gravesite, in the promised land. And he says, no, I'm going to pay for it. And he actually paid 400 shekels of silver that was an outlandish amount of money for the property because he wanted it to be very clear that he was setting his hope in the promise. It didn't really matter whether he was going to enjoy the land anymore, but he was assuming upon the Lord's promises that it would be a good thing, that even in time others would be buried there because they were not just rooting themselves. If you think about it, they're rooting their dead bodies into the land because they're rooting their dead bodies into the promise that God gave that was ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, the one that Joseph was a shadow of, that their lives, their dead bodies would be rooted into that because one day they would enjoy the fulfillment of the promises even after they were dead. So the question for you, as you hear this proclamation that Stephen is given, what is it in your life that you remain to be stiff-necked, where you keep putting yourself in the protagonist or maybe even the audacity of the hero of your story, The American faith today is more about God supporting our narrative than it is that we are thankfully receiving the grace of his narrative. So I know it's in all of us. It's how we think when we wake up. It's how we think when we have the slightest little irritation in our life, like getting your taxes back and you find out you owe instead of (laughs) getting a refund. Like, God, what? Like we're the center of the story. We respond like we're the center. We're not thinking about the fullness of what God is doing in our lives and how he has allowed us to be a part of the grand narrative. And because of that, we are often not of the ear in of the eyes to see. We're not of the heart to receive that we are the antagonist and we are the one in need of a savior. 
But it is there where we are receiving the greatest of his grace because that is where the Holy Spirit is truly at work when we find ourselves in that particular place. But if you are there, if you have been cut to heart, then the question is, are you being like Abraham? Are you acting in faith to the things that the Lord has given? It didn't probably make full sense to Abraham why it was important to to root this, put my bodies into this particular land, to root myself into these promises. But what is it that you do today that question the ways of the Lord? For many in the church in America today, just gathering, people have forgotten the blessing and the call to just be together. People are running away from the church because they are fearful of COVID or they're fearful of the state or they're just lazy and they're glad to have an excuse not to come to church on Sunday. People are not submitting themselves in walking together in the faith and the word. Many families do not just simply submit themselves to word and prayer in their home. It seems so insignificant. It seems so strange. It couldn't be the thing that the Lord is going to do in their home that by getting up and reading the word personally and privately and getting up and reading the word before the family and getting up and spending time in prayer and getting up and praying over and interceding for your family. That seems so lame. But even to this day when I am counseling people, in their disputes and their disagreements. And I said, well, have you all just taken the time to pray together? Have you taken the time to just be in the Word together? It's like, no, we we haven't. Then why are you listening to me? Because I have nothing to tell you that will surpass what the Word of the Lord will say. Why are you calling out to me for help? Call out to the one who is the hero of the story. The circumcision that... Abraham did upon the men in his household. We're going to have a baptism service next week. We're holding on to the promises. We're putting water over someone because we're pointing to the promise of the salvation of the Lord. And now we're coming together by the command of our king to eat at this table. It doesn't seem like, what is this going to do? It's holding on to the promises. And there's power in the promises of Jesus Christ. That's what the Pharisees couldn't handle. They wanted the power that they sought in their temporal, little, insignificant life. They did not want to take on to submitting to the great power of the life of Jesus Christ. So I implore you, do like Abraham. Yes, it seems like following the Lord sometime is blush absurd and foolish. It seems like spending time in his word and time on our knees and holding on tightly to these promises seem absurd. But by the resurrection power of Jesus that these people saw and still didn't get it, In many cases, we have a hope that there is power in these things that the Lord has given us. Let us pray that we adhere to them 
with full fast, full fast, steadfast faith. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for...